0: On any given Lord's Day, some of you are aware, and sometimes the elders are aware of things for which we grieve, uh, for which we may be glad, and sometimes coming up and preaching, uh, preaching frankly at times is an activity uh, that feels very conflicting. Because you have a text, you're preaching, but you realize there is a breadth of need. Of, and a need for the gospel, the need for the balm of the gospel, the need for the work of the Spirit. In ways that we just know the tip of the iceberg. And so I'd like for us as a, for a moment to pray to the one who will hold us fast before we open the word. Father, let each of us this morning by your Spirit's help and with the light of your word Confess with sincerity that we need you. We need you for understanding. We need you for rescue. We need every dimension of your transforming grace in every corner, every square inch of who and what we are. And we pray now that in this time in your word, in our remaining time, that our eyes and our ears and our hearts might be tuned to believe that you could not love us more, you will not love us less, and that you will hold us, your sheep, so fast that no one and nothing can ever snatch us from your hand. And so we pray this morning for all the work of your spirit, his convicting, his consoling, his enlightening, his transforming power in our lives that we might know Jesus Christ, your son, it's in his name that we pray, amen, amen. Well, it's good to be back. I've been gone, uh, and I want to apologize for that. I, I think, you know, sometimes you, on the back end of something, you realize, why did I do that? How did we schedule being gone three weeks out of five? And so it's great uh, to be back with you. As so we return to Exodus 18 this morning. You know, sometimes, think about this with me, especially kids, think about sounds and noises and words. Sounds and noises and words, kind of a new, a redo of lions and tigers and bears. Sometimes you are surrounded with noise and sound and words, but you tune it out. And some of your parents know that when you're looking at them, but you're not catching a single word they're telling you, okay? There's white noise, maybe the sound of a ceiling fan that needs to be balanced. Does anyone have one of those in your house? It's too loud. We've got one. Doors opening and shutting, an air conditioning, incessantly a unit turning on and off. Maybe a train and the, 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 the whistle of a train that you can hear the distance. The bark, or shall I say the barks, plural, of a neighbor's dog driving you mad. Like, and you're thinking, can't someone give that dog some training? Cars on your street. The siren of an emergency vehicle. I mean, even just sounds unexpected. I was having coffee with a friend at stomping grounds Friday night, Thursday night, right on Trade Street in Greer. Everything was quiet. And all of a sudden, this car came by, like right there with the like beefed up mufflers, and it was just all of a sudden, and it was completely startling. I about jumped out of my seat, okay? Sounds, noise, words, maybe a crying baby. The landscape contractor with his mower going, is blowing, mowing, and blowing. Every day, you and I hear this cacophony of sounds in words. Some of you tune them out. It's more of a challenge for others. But I understand. I, like, I've come to realizing these last few years that I'm a person that's easily distracted by sounds. I really am. And I'm conscious of the myriad sounds that accompany a normal seven-day, 168-hour week with all its rhythms of rest and work and meals and study and prayer, commute, meetings, conversations, tasks, etc. And like you, I hear a lot. I ignore some of it. I consciously endure some of it, thinking it'll be over soon, and then I respond accordingly to what I consider important. What and how you listen to others and the truth around you shapes the person you are today and the person you're becoming tomorrow. And kids, just for a moment, remember this, your ears were not created so that someone could Tap a market and then invent the Q tip so your ears could be cleaned out. Your ears were designed for listening. How many times does Solomon in the book of Proverbs say, Listen, 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 my son, to your father's teaching or your mother's instruction? And so this morning we'll see the response and the impact of one man as he hears all that is good. And then he proceeds from there even to help another, and thus a nation for good. And so our title, Hearing All the Good, Helping Them for Good. Just a few reminders, since it's been a few weeks since I've preached from Exodus, so I thought I'd give you some reminders as we consider Old Testament narrative. I call this series, The Story, but someone has said story sometimes can mean fiction, so maybe narrative is more accurate. But quickly, three things about Old Testament narrative. Number one is that Old Testament narrative is not simply illustrative narrative, but it's in fact historical narrative. We may illustrate truth from the Bible's accounts, but they are more than just the raw ingredients or the raw material to provide edifying illustrations. This is the record here This is the record of God's redemptive revelation of how he enters into covenant relationship with a people to create a nation out of which the world would receive the Messiah, the one who says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall die. So not only is Old Testament narrative not simply illustrative but historical, but secondly, every historical account in the Scriptures is designed to ultimately express itself in the doxology of worship. Paul says it this way in Romans 15, verses 4 through 6. He writes, "...for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction." That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know the context here of Romans 15, what Paul is showing is that when you pull out the threads, the lines of implication of the gospel, it says, that we're to live with one another acknowledging Christian liberty and expressing that in charity. And so biblical history, Paul is saying uniquely in Romans 15, plays a role in our sanctification, in our growing Christ-likeness. And so here in Romans 15, this discussion about Christian liberty points out that charity is required and will produce a gospel-focused unity whose sweetest fruit is the doxology of a resounding Psalm 92-like praise to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul connects our liberty with charity, which produces unity, and the acceptance of one another's liberty in Christ that then results in this beautiful, fragrant, resounding doxology of praise to God. And then finally, not only is the Old Testament narrative historical, not only does it express itself in doxology, but thirdly, as Dane Ortland and Miles Van Pelt, they write that we must have this renewed appreciation for the Bible. You ready? The Bible as theologically unified, historically rooted, progressively unfolding, and ultimately Christ centered narrative, or a Christ centered narrative of God's covenantal work in our world to redeem sinful humanity, to get us from the first creation to the new creation from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Everything begins and ends and centers on King Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the living Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king of his church, the risen and reigning one who Paul tells Timothy will come to judge the living and the dead. So, let's turn to our text, and I want to consider this just in two parts. First is hearing all the good in verses 1 through 20. You may have forgotten about Jethro. Every time I hear the name Jethro, I think of the Beverly what? Hillbillies, okay. But there's a more noble. Now, he was funny, but there's a more noble man, Jethro, also known as Reuel, the priest of Midian, the father of Zipporah, the father-in-law of Moses, and the grandfather of, I'm sure, many more, but certainly Gershom and Eliezer. Do you remember Jethro? And we know that Moses does not want us to forget him, for Moses keeps referring to him as his father-in-law, and that's important. You'll notice as though, hey, Moses, how many times do you need to tell us that Jethro is your father-in-law. But he keeps repeating. That's a very Hebrew way of emphasizing something, all right? He's he's emphasizing and, in effect, honoring this man who you might say, humanly speaking, saved his life. And so he's referring to him as his father-in-law at every turn. It was Jethro who reminded his seven daughters at that initial meeting there in Exodus chapter, if you go to the beginning of Exodus, chapter two, the end of middle of two, he reminded his seven daughters that they ought to have shown hospitality to this foreigner, this fleeing foreigner, Moses, this stranger fleeing from Egypt to save them from the harassment by shepherds at their well. And if you'll notice, if you look at Jethro as Moses presents him in the book of Exodus, it's always in a positive light. So first, he questions his daughters, why have you not shown hospitality to him? He says, then where is he? In Exodus 2.20, why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And it was Jethro who, when Moses requested leave, In chapter 4, verse 18 of Exodus, where he says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. This is all he said. And I love this. Go in peace. It's the difference between the person, when you have an idea, they're like, look, send me an email, justify the price, make sure the, the benefits outweigh the cost. Just three words. Hey, it's like pops. Do you mind? I need to take a trip. Like I got important business back where I came from. Three words, go in peace. Go in peace. Jethro was that quintessential hassle-free father-in-law who I only will ever dream that I might become, who was always at every turn for his son-in-law. And now we're told, though, that Jethro hears good news. Now, we don't hear that word good yet, but look in verse one. It says, he heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. All right? It was what God had done, and it summed up in a single phrase how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Even this very... The book of Exodus means departure. In the redemption, God rescuing his people is the defining prototypical event. It's the pattern of redemption for us within the whole framework of the Bible. And Jethro heard it. This good news had come to his ears that we don't know where it was from. Was it from a first hand, a second hand, a third hand account? We're not told. But he acted upon it. He headed toward Moses, who we are told is encamped there. He's encamped at the mountain of God at the end of verse 5. And we're told that he brought those with him who were most beloved by Moses. Very simple, three people. Zipporah and two boys. Zipporah and Moses and Zipporah's two sons. Gershom and Eleazar. Unless we forget the significance of the meaning of the names of the two sons of Moses and Zipporah, we're reminded. And some of you know what this looks like. Sometimes, like Clint read this morning from Exodus 18, and sometimes on Sunday morning, I will send a text I look forward to your reading Exodus 18 this morning. It's that simple reminder, right? But Exodus, but Moses is like, hey, it's been a while since you, I, I wrote about the meanings of Gershom and Eliezer, so I'm going to give it to you again. We're reminded. And they distilled two biographical realities of Moses' life up until this point. Now, of course, these are his sons. He's biased in terms of bringing them forward in the narrative but look at their names Gershom, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And it's important that you understand that the moment that Jethro hears about Moses. All he knows him as, in chapter 2, verse 19, is he is an Egyptian. But not just any foreigner, not just any Egyptian. He's the one who saved his seven daughters at the well from a shepherd's harassment. And so here's their names. They're meaningful. I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And of course, as we know, it was there in his father-in-law's employment, taking care of his flocks for 40 years, that God prepares without wasting a single year all the preparation that Moses will need to lead his people out of Egypt. And then there's this name, Eleazar. Eli, my God, as their help? So you might say it, the God of my father was my help. So there it is. You might notice in your ESV footnote, it simply says right there that it says, my God is help. Eli, my God, as their help. And then he, he gives it as the God of my father was my help, but then he annotates it. He says, wait a minute. I'm, he inserts this editorial note. Not simply my God, not simply my God, my help, but my God, my help who delivered me from the hand and the sword of Pharaoh. You see, Moses never forgot. He lived with his conscious awareness that he and the people of Israel were a rescued, redeemed people, the object of Yahweh's undeserved unrelenting, and infallible, steadfast love. So let me echo Jesus' words to Martha in John eleven twenty six. 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he who believes will live and never die? Do you believe that he will hold you fast? I want us to see the progressive pattern in these first 12 verses. First, Jethro hears all that God had done for Moses, his son-in-law, and the people of Israel. Remembering begins with listening. Recounting begins with hearing. Recalling begins with attentiveness, attentive reading and listening. Brothers and sisters, how are you doing? how are you doing? You know how when you go and get your oil changed and they say, we do this 15-point inspection, bop, 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 bop. How are you doing at hearing and recalling all the good that God has done for you in Jesus Christ? So Jethro hears this. And then he travels to Moses at the mountain. And don't forget this. This mountain of God will be an important theme as we move through the book of Exodus. And he travels there with Zipporah and Gershom and Eliezer. And notice his humility. This man who only receives condemnation, not, con- not condemnation, but commendation by his son-in-law, Moses. Here's this old man, respected, wise, He's not even presumptive. He sends word, though he's greater and older, to gain an audience with Moses. Look there in verse 6. It said, he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Just imagine someone puts a note on your desk. Hey, Pops is here with uh, your wife and the kids, and they've just traveled a long, long ways to see you. What does he do? Of course, he comes out without delay. And they get all that preliminary small talk out of the way. How has the weather been over there in Midian? How's the crops doing? Wow, Gershom, you sure are getting taller and you look a lot like your mother, but I think Eliezer favors me. Oh, did you see the Braves are in second place, but they're gaining on the Mets? All that type of small talk. But then they get to the big stuff. They go inside Moses' tent for the real talk. And now Jethro receives this first person account from Moses. You can only imagine the old man sitting there hanging on every single word. While Moses, while his son-in-law, and there's Zipporah, and maybe Gershon's right there, and, 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 and Eliezer, and they're just staring wide they're they're hanging on every single word jethro has initially heard all that god had done from another source actually it said that he yeah he heard of all that god had done verse 18 but now moses gives the first person account kind of like you heard it here first And he tells all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh. There's a distinction, right? First, it's all that God had done, verse 1, for Moses and for Israel. And now there's this description of all that Yahweh had done in righteous judgment to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. After all, this is the God of the end of Exodus 2, where Moses tells us that God heard the groanings, Of his people. He remembered his covenant. He looked as though God has eyes like you and me. He looked upon the afflictions of his people. And he had that compassion and pity for them. And he knew. He knew. And you see this now all in living color. As Moses in the tent. He's telling every piece, not just the framework, but filling in all the details of the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. No doubt he was telling them about the 10 plagues and that final one, the Passover lamb and the Passover meal and, and, and how they went through the Red Sea And just when they were most desperate, God opened up the waters of the Red Sea, and they were able to pass through in safety to the other side, though they swallowed up all of Pharaoh's horsemen and his chariots, and God rescued them. But he didn't just tell them all the good. He told them all that the hardship had come upon them in the way, how they were without water and without bread. And they feared that, as a multitude of more than two million, they would starve to death. They would die of thirst in that wilderness, in that dry and barren and weary land. But look what it says. It was Moses that first told them all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, but also the hardship that had come upon them in a way. But look how it ends. Look how Moses describes the message he delivered to his father-in-law, how the Lord had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Do you believe this? And I want to apply this for a moment. Have you remembered that his care for you this day may be described as for your sake or for our sake? It was Paul who wrote this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter eight and verse nine. And may you know these words, for you know. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, as the hymn opens, thou who wast rich, what? Beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. New Testament theologians would say that the most rich preposition in our Greek New Testament, is this idea of God for us. Like when Paul speaks in Ephesians 5, and he says, love one another just as Christ loved us and gave himself. There's that three little word, for. It's for the little three little word, three letter word, for. Do you believe that? Is this the gospel that you're preaching to yourself today? Have you let your circumstances, your sins, your difficulties eclipse where you've not been able to pull those curtains apart and see the light of the love of God that's in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, how does, jo- how does Jethro respond? It's very simple. How does he respond to this first hand account? He rejoices. That's it. He's glad. It's pretty easy this morning just to say to Jamie and Lee, hey, we're glad for you guys, right? It said, He rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Some of you know that Thomas Watson wrote a little book that's called All Things for Good. It's a book on Romans 8.28 where Paul says that the love and sovereignty and wisdom of God is expressed in how he weaves everything in our lives, those of us who are his, in such a way that the very thing he's predestined us to Which is perfectly to reflect, like looking at ourselves in a mirror, it's to perfectly reflect the very image and righteousness of the one who saves us. That's our ultimate good. And so my question is what is your ultimate good this day? What is it that you would fill in and say, when this takes place, then I truly live? What do you prize most? What do you delight in above all things? Is it your heavenly father who through Jesus Christ and by the work of the spirit has brought you to himself when you were completely dead in your own sins and you were a rebel to God and he's forgiven all your sins and he's declared righteous, righteous in my sight. Received the righteousness of my son on his account. And he's adopted you as his own. You're no longer an orphan. He's brought you into his family and he's begun to make you more and more like him. So that he's your greatest joy, your deepest comfort. Your solid rock. Your sure and your steady anchor. Is it him? Kids, let me ask you to think about this. One way, when you take, if you've ever done this, if you take something that has texture and you put paper over it and then you put a flat crayon and roll it, what's underneath it is revealed on top by that pressure of that. How you respond in pressure reveals what's inside of you. And so when you, if you think I want to be a Christian, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, begin to study how you respond to pressure and disappointment, your own disobedience, your own failings, your own struggles, and see if what's coming up out of that is that more than anything, you just want God's smile. You want to know Him. You delight to love Him, to discover Him in all His beauty. That's one way to know if He is your ultimate good. So Jethro hears, Moses tells Jethro rejoices and now Jethro blesses the Lord with his own lips. There is a sense in which this looks like Jethro the pagan coming full circle and we see here this God-centered response. It says he blesses the Lord with his own lips. Look what it says there. It said, blessed be the Lord. In in other words, Moses doesn't simply say that he blessed the Lord. He gives us the very words, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, look at this godly resolve. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, They dealt arrogantly with the people. I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. There's the Egyptians' gods. Here's Moses' God and the God of the Israelites. It's a simple comparison. This is less than this this is greater than this i know that yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair they deal arrogantly with the people and you see the marks here of a man whose life whose thinking has been changed by god he's listening to all that god has done he's rejoicing for all the good that yahweh had done to the people of his son-in-law and for his son-in-law and how he had delivered them from there. He's blessing the Lord. There's this gladness. There's this apprehension that Yahweh is greater than the gods of the Egyptians. And then look, there's this worship. Look what he said. Look what he does. He expresses his joy He expresses his confession with sacrificial worship, and he brings this burnt offering and sacrifice to God. And so there in the tent is Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, apparently changed. He's heard all the good. He's believed all the good. He's rejoicing for all the good, and then it costs him something. It says he brings a burnt offering, and a sacrifice to God, and they eat together. Look, and we're told a final time, in Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, maybe not a father-in-law, because we're told again in verse 13, Moses keeps emphasizing the role, Jethro's role in his life. And it says, and there Aaron enters the picture. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread, with Moses' father-in-law before God. And there's this coming together, there's this identifying as though in a very pre-Ruth way, it's as though Jethro is saying, your God shall be my God, your people shall be my people, because there's nothing that brings people to a more lowest level common denominator, but a very meaningful con- denominator like we'll have in a few minutes when we go and we eat together as they eat. After hearing all the good, after blessing the Lord, rejoicing over that, after blessing the Lord, after ap- apprehending that God, Yahweh, Israel's God, the God of Moses and the people of Israel's greater than all gods, and particularly the gods of the Egyptians, there's this worship, this, this text ends with a doxology. So for the sake of time, I'd like to just hold off on preaching the last half of this text, and we'll hold that for next Sunday night, verses 13 through 27. But I want to press this in on you this morning. Have you lost your awe, have you lost a sense of awe at the person and works of God? Are you on autopilot kind of ho-humming it, just another day where you've lost your awe? Paul David Tripp in his book, Dangerous Calling, he writes about this danger. He says, beware the danger of losing your awe." Do you know that you were rescued if you're in Christ? Do you know that you can be rescued if you are not? Do you know, and are you counting that the single most important issue right now is that if you're not a Christian, that you come in faith to the only one who can save you, Jesus Christ. And you say, take me, receive me, take, I want all of you, I believe that you're the only name from heaven given among men by which I can be saved. There's no other solution. And this is not about reformation, this is about rescue, And the very thing, as a parent was telling me this week on why she prays so earnestly for her children is the realization is that the single thing that our children need most, we as parents cannot give them. And that's a new heart. I say, come. And if you've been walking with Christ, but you've grown hard of hearing, if you've grown dull of hearing, Tune your ears. Tune your ears to hear all the good that God has done for us in Christ. God, help us do that this day and to eternity.